Well, good morning. Uh, Would you please all uh, open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 23? Psalm 23, and as uh, George mentioned earlier, uh, you were, most of you at least, are are undoubtedly familiar with this psalm. Some of you, as George mentioned, perhaps recite it every day as a prayer. Indeed, it's been uh, used throughout the history of the church and and even before the history of the church in the time of the the Jews uh, frequently in worship and in private devotion. And so in one way, that makes it even more difficult of a a text to preach. And and to be honest with you, I was was up in the air on whether or not I should preach this text. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, thank Pastor Bill and Pastor Carl for extending the opportunity to me to uh, share with you all this morning, but I got the call from Bill on Wednesday afternoon. He said, Steve, would you preach for me on Sunday? And I said, well, yeah, I'd be, I'd love to, I'd be thrilled to. Um, I thought perhaps you had something more mundane to ask me on Wednesday afternoon. Um, <laughs> but I said, anyways, I would be thrilled to. And then uh, two things immediately came to my mind or two passages of scripture immediately came to my mind that I could uh, present to you all this morning. The 23rd Psalm, which I did a detailed study of, uh, last semester at seminary, or something from the book of Jonah, which I've, I've recently taught and preached through. And so those were kind of the two low-hanging fruit, I guess you could say, that, I, that immediately came to my mind on Wednesday afternoon. And then I saw uh, Pastor Carl here on campus Wednesday evening, and he came up to me and said, hey, brother, what are you going to preach on Sunday? I said, I don't know. I'm thinking about Psalm 23 or, or something from Jonah. He said, oh, you should do Psalm 23. And I said, I don't know, man. It's a tough one. Everybody knows that one. He's like, oh, you should do it. I've never preached that one. And then he walked away. <laughs> and I was still up in the air. And then Friday afternoon, I got the email that said I was preaching Psalm 23 <laughs> from Pastor Carl to all of you. And I said, well, I guess that gives me a little bit of direction. And so... Um, with that in mind, let's, let's read the text that's before us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As we come before you this morning as a gathered body of your saints, as we prepare to meditate on on this beloved passage of scripture, I ask that you would tune our ears to the sweet sound of Christ's voice, that we would faithfully follow in the path that we have before us. Though as the psalmist records, he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord, our own path in front of us is uncertain at times. Father, but we rest in your protective presence. Father, with full certainty and trust, we rest in the promises of Christ that he has come to give abundant life, 
that he is our good shepherd, that he has laid down his own life for the sake of us, his sheep, and that we are secure possessions of his mighty hand. Father, let us hear from your word this morning. May the convictions of our own minds be strengthened in who you are and the nature of your character. And Lord, may the affections of our hearts be inflamed by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Father, we love you, and we pray this all through Christ's precious name. Amen. This psalm begins with the dramatic statement, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When you hear those words, the Lord is my shepherd, what does that do to you? Do those words ring in your ears? Does your pulse quicken at the thought that almighty God himself has condescended and stooped low to the point where he cares for his people, that he cares individually for his children as a shepherd lovingly cares for his sheep, as a shepherd lovingly leads his sheep from pasture to pasture, from water to water, ultimately home to the sheepfold. Do these words stir your soul? I hope that they do. I hope that they do. But my fear for myself and for those of you here this morning is that perhaps these words do not stir your soul in the way that they should. Because due to the familiarity of this psalm, and oh, this psalm is familiar, right? Even the pagans know this psalm. Even those who haven't darkened the door of a church for many years have heard this psalm. Our grandmothers cross-stitched this psalm and embroidered pillows with this psalm. And, and how many pictures have been and, and, and works of kind of kishy art have been sold in Christian bookstores over the years emblazoned with the words, the Lord is my shepherd. There's a certain familiarity with these words that I fear can, can subtly produce a sort of contempt within us that we can just gloss over them, that we can just say, the Lord is my shepherd. Thank you, God, for loving me as one of your sheep. And we can fail to meditate upon the profound meaning of these words. Some of us have been followers of Christ. Some of us have been members of the church and faithful servants to the Lord for decades. Some of us, particularly those of you who grew up at Grace, don't even remember when you were saved. You don't have a, 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 a BC story, so to speak. You, you've just, you've been a Christian, praise God, your entire life. And, and, and that familiarity with Christ, that familiarity with God, that familiarity with the shepherd can produce a quiet sort of pride that creeps in a subtle sense of self-sufficiency where we believe to think that it's, well, it's just what I do, right? I am just that kind of sheep. I get up, I read my Bible, I pray, 
I go to work as though I am living quorum Deo before the face of God every single day. I go home. I never yell at my wife. I take care of my kids. I've never kicked my dog. I never get mad in traffic. I never do any of those things that, that lesser Christians would do. That's just who I am. I'm a rather good sheep. My aim this morning is to perhaps to um, overturn that subtle sense of pride that can creep in. To upset that self-sufficiency that all of us struggle with. I, I, I appreciate it so much that we read from Ephesians chapter 2. Lest any of us should forget that it is from death that Christ has called us. That we were dead men and women without hope before the Holy Spirit reignited the spirit within us. Reignited life within us and brought us into Christ. And so it is my aim this morning to remind us all, myself first and foremost, of my utter dependence upon the shepherd. And so the psalm begins with the name of the shepherd. It begins with the Lord. This is the covenant name of God. This is Yahweh. This is the name that was so holy that the medieval Jews and their superstition decided, you know what? We shouldn't even say this name anymore. And let's just confuse the letters around this name so everybody will remember not to say this name because they considered it to be so holy. But this is God's covenant name. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord who created the cosmos by the very word of his power who spoke light into being. And it was, it's almost as if it wasn't even a challenge for him. He said, let there be light. Right? He said, let there be sky. Let the earth be filled with creeping things and let the waters be filled. It's almost as if it was just like, let this happen. Right? I can't even let myself out of bed in the morning. Right? <laughs> Everything we do as humans is an extreme act of exertion. Right? Have you ever gotten home from work and, and, and dinner isn't ready? And you go, I have to make dinner now. <sighs> that means I have to go shopping. That means I have to do all these things. There's no, just let this happen in our lives. Everything we do comes with toil. And God is so powerful. God is so mighty that he just says, let this happen by the mere utterance of his voice. And then he created man and woman in his image. Right? Consider what that means, dear brothers and sisters, to be created in the image of the almighty God, that our presence here on this earth, by our presence as believers on this earth, we are the image of God represented to all of creation. Right? When you interact with the world as a Christian, when you turn away anger by a kind word, when you turn the other cheek, when you go the extra mile, when you love in a sacrificial way, you are imaging God to your family. You are imaging God to your neighbors. This is the God who has created us. This is the Lord who is David's shepherd. This is the Lord who is upholding the universe by the word of his power, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This is the God that we serve. And David says, the Lord is my 
shepherd. Notice the, the use of the, the personal pronoun, the personal possessive pronoun. Now, I know we don't like to talk about grammar on Sunday mornings because nobody likes to talk about grammar ever. Um, <laughs> unless you're one of those ones. <laughs> Note the use, right? It seems kind of exclusive, doesn't it? After all that God has made, after all that God has created for David to have the audacity. Now, granted, David did have a, a very unique relationship with the Lord. David was the covenant king over Israel that God had hand-selected from the sons of Jesse to be his king that God had covenanted with that there would be a king from the line of David that would sit on his throne for all of eternity. So David did have a bit of a special relationship, but for David to say, my shepherd, well, what about the rest of us? Right? Jesus says in, in um, John chapter 10, he talks about the sheep of his hand and he will not lose any of them. Jesus is using plural language. I would encourage you to consider the attitude of children when thinking about this personal possessive pronoun, my shepherd. As George mentioned earlier, my, my wife and I have been blessed with, with six children. And I suppose in a way that you could say that my wife and I are our children's parents, that we are their parents. But children don't think like that, do they? Particularly in moments of distress, really any moment, if a, if a young child wants their mother, and I'm just going to say mother because my kids, I have one kid that wants me some of the time, like 50% of the time he wants me. That means... Well, I can't do the math that fast, but that means all the rest of the time, all the children prefer my wife, as they rightly should, particularly in the midst of distress, right? And when a child hurts themselves, when a child hurts and skins their knee, even if they're just one of six, it's not like they say, I want our mommy, right? That's not what they say. I want our daddy. No, they say, I want my mommy, Right? In the midst of distress, it is a singular possessive pronoun. I want my mother. Right? David here, as one sheep among many, rightfully says, the Lord is my shepherd. And we individually this morning, though we all look to the Lord as our shepherd, can collectively and singularly say with David, the Lord is my shepherd shepherd. And he has a job. Look at the job that Yahweh has. He's a shepherd. And the Hebrew, this, this word shepherd is, a, is an occupational term, right? There's the, there, there would be the verb to shepherd, and then there would be just the, the occupational term. We have the, the same thing in our, in our own language. We call somebody who is a surgeon, someone who does surgery, right? We, we do the, a similar type of thing. And here it's the, the occupational term, my shepherd. In the ancient Near East, even into our own day, the shepherd is a lowly occupation. I suppose those of us who have children here aren't sitting at home thinking about our children's future and looking at our sons going, you know, really what we want them to do is grow up to be shepherds. Right? I believe there's a song along those lines uh, Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. I think that's how the song went. Make them be doctors or lawyers or such. 
Um, here Yahweh condescends to this lowly occupation. In the ancient Near East, the, the occupation of shepherd was reserved oftentimes for the youngest of sons, like David. Remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 16 when Samuel comes to anoint one of the sons of David to be the king over Israel. And he comes in and, and all of Jesse's sons are brought before him. And he says, oh, this is, this is the one. This is the one. Look, tall, dark, handsome, right? all those things. Um, I, just as a side, I was amazed last week. Have you noticed how Pastor John can just read the Old Testament and it make minimal comments and it becomes the best sermon you've ever heard? I was just, he was just reading through 1 Samuel. And I was like, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. That's incredible. Um, at any rate, look at all these sons. Samuel's looking at him going, oh, this has got to be the one. And he says, God says, nope, not this one. Nope, not this one. Not this one. Not this one. And he says, well, I've, done, I've, got, I've burned through all the sons. Which one is it? He says, Jesse, do you have any other ones? Well, the youngest one's out with the sheep. The youngest one who wasn't fit to come and meet the prophet Samuel, the one who certainly couldn't be king of Israel, he was the one that was sent out to watch the sheep. It's a lowly occupation. They would spend their days moving animals from pasture to pasture, tending to their every needs. And sheep are needy animals. Sheep are, are prone to injuring themselves. I don't have direct familiarity with sheep, but I do have direct familiarity with, with some forms of livestock. And livestock will kill itself. That's the, that's the short story. Cows will kill themselves. Chickens will do the dumbest things and kill themselves. And sheep are consistently ranked at the bottom of the intelligence scale in relationship to all other livestock. They require a tremendous amount of tending. What condescension from the almighty God that he should stoop so low for us to say, the Lord is my shepherd. For him to stoop down to care for us in this personal hands-on way. Having stooped down to this level, David makes an emphatic declaration. He says, I shall not want. It could just as accurately be rendered, I shall never lack anything. It's an absolute negation, full stop. I will never lack. With Yahweh as my shepherd, how could I? It's within this blessed state of complete and total fulfillment. It's in this blessed state of total care that David begins to expound upon what it means to be a sheep of Yahweh who lacks nothing. And in the remainder of the psalm, he presents three benefits that are derived from having Yahweh as his shepherd. There are three benefits that we see. The first is abundant provision. For those of you that are taking notes, abundant provision in verses two and three. In verses four and five, we see his sure protection. And in verse six, we see the constant pursuit of the shepherd. The first is the shepherd's abundant provision, verses two and three. And David makes four statements, four statements here about the Lord's provision. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Four statements, four actions that Yahweh does. He makes me lie down, he leads me, he restores, and he leads me again. Many commentators have tried to identify, you know, what's the analogous relationship between these things. So surely the, the green pastures are, are God's word where his sheep feed and, and surely the refreshing waters are God's spirit that come down. And while I understand the attempts to, to want to put a specific item on these different illustrations, the picture here that is presented is God's provision in total. To try to narrow it down to two things is try, to try to narrow down God's abundance. The picture here is of a sheep who is perfectly supplied for. The ancient, um, ancient Israel and, and modern Israel, because it hasn't changed all that much in the past couple of thousand years, is kind of a dry place. In fact, it, it bears many similarities to Southern California and its climate and in its topography. It's, it's mountainous. It's rather dry for most of the year. And the only places where things grow are where there's water where there's water brought in from, from the streams and irrigation is brought in. And so the shepherd's job was to drive the flocks from place to place in search of good grass, in search of good water. This was the job of a shepherd. When it says green pastures, let's not limit ourselves to one form of God's provision and one form of God's feeding. God provides completely for us. And all of his provision is very good. It's like the shepherd who, who knowingly and, and, and methodically and logically takes his sheep to this field and they graze until the grass is just the right height. One of, one of, the, one of the interesting things about sheep, and this is just a little bit of Colorado history thrown in there. In the, in the, um, in the early days of the American West, uh, there was a, there was, there was uh, near wars between sheep and cattle ranchers, near wars. So the sheep and cattle wars, they're called. And, and the problem with sheep is that they, they have a tendency to chew the grass right down to the nubs, right? And just completely pick it clean because they're not that smart. Cattle, on the other hand, will graze the field nicely, but they don't chew it down to the nubs. And so the, the ranchers, the, the cattle ranchers would, I mean, it came to bullets and blows, between the cattle ranchers and sheep farmers, they would be infuriated with the sheep ranchers for, for ruining the fields just by letting their, their sheep haphazardly feed. The picture here is not of that kind of grazing, that the, that the Lord brings his sheep, lets them eat just enough, and then gets them out of there before they destroy the grass. Right? How much is that like us? How often can we tend to stay in one place and just keep eating and not move on. When it says he leads me beside still waters, this is a beautiful picture of leading. It's the same Hebrew verb that's used over in Genesis chapter 33. Flip over there with me, if you will. Genesis chapter 33, verses 12 through 14. Genesis 33, verses 12 through 13. This is when Jacob is returning uh, with, his, with his wives and with his flocks and all of his possessions. 
uh, back to the promised land. And if you remember, Jacob left off on not that great of terms with his brother Esau because he kind of stole his blessing and his birthright. And then he fled the country and went and found a wife. And he's coming, but he's coming back. And Esau greets him and in an amazing display of, of, of grace. Esau says, bro, all is forgiven. Yeah, I'm just glad you're home. I'm glad you're back. He says, come on with me. Let's go. Esau said, verse 12, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see ear. This, these words, I will lead on slowly. The Israelites were a, were a pastoral people. It would make sense that they would have technical terms for shepherding and those kinds of things. And this word lead on slowly is the same word that's here, used here when it says, he leads me beside still waters or he leads me beside calm waters. And the picture is of a shepherd patiently leading his sheep, leading young sheep, leading pregnant ewes who are about to give earth, who if they're driven too hard are just going to die. They're going to miscarry their lambs, little ones that can't keep up. This is the kind of leading that God does with us. When he leads us beside still waters, he is patiently leading us as a loving shepherd. This is no cowboy with a rope. This is no man on a horse. This is someone who is with his flock so he can feel the pace that they can go at. This is the gentle leading. By quiet waters, sheep are, are funny animals. If the stream is moving too fast, they don't want anything to do with it. They're scared. If it's a stagnant pond, they're going to get sick. They need just the right amount of water flow. They need the, the bubbling brook, so to speak, to go down and to drink at their leisure. This is how God lovingly leads his people to green grass, to fresh water that refreshes the sheep. David said, he restores my soul. Spiritually, when we look to Yahweh as our shepherd, when we feed on his word, when we drink from his presence through prayer, when we are encouraged through the fellowship of the saints by the ordinary and common means of grace, our souls are refreshed. We are spiritually nourished like a sheep that has been well cared for. And then it says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, when we think of the word path, when we read that initially, we think, hiking trail or some sort of single track wandering through the mountains. The, the, the word here could be accurately translated a wagon, uh, a wagon path or a wagon track. It's a broad road. It's a packed down road. The Lord's not trying to put any obstacles in the way of the sheep as he's, as he's leading them from one field to another. It is just this picture of wonderful provision, this picture of wonderful kindness from the shepherd. He's doing everything right. And then at the end of verse three, we get this purpose clause. Lest we think that it's all about us, 
we're reminded that it is for his name's sake. This provision that God gives us as his sheep has a definite purpose. All of what has preceded God's role as a shepherd, his leading to green fields, his, his taking us to pleasant waters, it is all for his glory. At times, we can become so self-focused. We think about our own lives. We think about our own place. We think about where we are that we forget. We forget that we are a sheep. We forget that we are but one of millions, one of millions through all throughout the history of the entire church, throughout all of human history, that our Lord is leading and shepherding. Lest we start to think too highly of ourselves, I would encourage you to look around at your fellow sheep and realize that you are just one in the flock, that the Lord is building us up, that the Lord is sanctifying us, that the Lord has redeemed us, not on account of us collectively, but on account of the glorious bride of Christ that he's going to present to his son. Our lives exist for the shepherd, not the other way around. And at this point, at this point, I love verses one through three. I love this picture. This is a great picture, but we know because we have a pulse and we are breathing and we have experience in this life that this isn't it. Right? Our lives are not always characterized by green fields. Our lives are not always characterized by pleasant waters. Our lives are not always characterized by walking on this nice, straight, and firm path. Sometimes we go a different way. And here, David takes a hard pivot. He goes from this pastoral scene to the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, even though it's this big disjunction, you were here and you were just fat and happy. And all of a sudden, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's like, what happened? What happened to the green fields? What happened to the good life? Have you ever had that kind of experience in your life where you were, you were going along and things were good? You were going along and, and you had no real complaints, you know, kind of moderate everyday complaints, but things were good. Things were fine. And all of a sudden, you have your even though moment. And all of a sudden, even though you find yourself now in the valley of the shadow of death, the reality is, is that as believers, as followers of Christ, every single one of us are going to face trials of various kinds. Some of them are caused through no fault of our own. Some of them are a result of living in a sinful and fallen world. Sometimes you get sick. Sometimes your spouse gets sick. Sometimes your child gets sick. We have some dear friends uh, back home. Uh, the wife was, was pregnant with her third child and, and lost it in about the eighth month of pregnancy. Immediately after 
the, the child was born, she had to have an emergency hysterectomy, um, thereby eliminating the chance of any future children. After emergency hysterectomy, their two-year-old son became gravely ill. Uh, and the doctors didn't know what was wrong. And they've been going to see different doctors. And one doctor solves one problem and they think they're doing well with their son and they don't still really know what's wrong. And then a new problem manifests itself nearly uh, the next week, it would seem like. And it's been this way for them for uh, years now. One, any one of those trials would be enough. Any one of those trials would be more than any of us would want to face. And they've had trial upon trial stacked on top. Where do you look in the times of, of dark trial? Where do you look when, when, when it's not your fault? You know, when you have no idea why this is happening. You look to the shepherd. You look to the shepherd when you're going through these trials that are no fault of your own. But the other type of trials that we go through, perhaps the trial that we're all more familiar with, are the trials that are a direct result, not of sin in the world, but of sin in our lives. Sometimes as sheep, we just decide we just want to run off and do something stupid. And you end up with the same result. You end up in the valley of the shadow of death. Whether it's through the sin in the world or the sin in your own heart, you end up there. David was, was equally familiar with this kind of, of trial. David was familiar with the first kind when Saul was chasing him through the wilderness and wanted his life. And David's like, I don't, know what's, I don't know what's going on. But David ended up getting chased through the wilderness later on because of his sin with Bathsheba by his son Absalom and David's absolute and utter failure of as a father. Right? We, are, we, are, we need to be prepared to understand that we are going to go through trials and times of suffering in this life. The good news, and I believe it is good news for those of you who are suffering and for those of you, which is all of us who will suffer, is that no matter if, if the sin is just the sin in the world that's causing the trial or if it's a the direct consequence of our own sinful actions, the, the response is pretty much the same. When it's our own sin, certainly repentance must happen. Certainly we must come to a realization and, and stop the bleeding, so to speak and repent and turn from that sin and, and look unto Christ. But the, the key of persevering through struggle, the, the, the key to persevering through suffering is in the midst of life's trials, we can confidently look to our shepherd and say, I fear no evil. I fear no evil from without or from within. Because in the midst of all the pain, in the midst of all the fear and the pain and the tears and the trials and the suffering, we can look to Christ and say, I will fear no evil for you are with me. With God as our shepherd, with Christ as our good shepherd, it does not matter one whit the amount of suffering that is put on our backs. It does not matter one whit the amount of trials we are going through because we can look to Christ. And we have this amazing 
promise, this amazing promise of scripture because the world looks at suffering and they want to say that's meaningless. What purpose can that have? Why on earth would a good God let people suffer? And the reason that a good God would let people suffer is given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when the apostle Paul told the church at Corinth, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Whether it's suffering that you've, has resulted from your own sin or whether it's suffering, suffering that is resulting from sin in the world. And who knows what comes next? I know that many of us in this room this morning are, are filled with a little bit, just a touch of anxiety about what the future may hold. Right? Apparently a guy with a pen can just start making laws faster than anyone else has ever made them in the history of our country. And that fills us with a little bit of anxiety. We talk about $30 a gallon gas and maybe that's not a joke. We have a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of fear, but we can look to our shepherd and declare, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When it talks about the shepherd's rod and staff, he's got two implements, right? He's got the staff for taking care of the sheep, the staff for disciplining the sheep if they needed a little bit to keep them in line, and he's got the rod and the rods for beating back the wolves. Remember when David was talking to Remember when David was talking to King Saul before he went out to, to fight the Philistine and, and Saul looks at him and says, you can't go fight this Philistine, you're but a boy. And he looks at him and says, I've killed lion and bear with my sling. I've grabbed them by the beard and smote them. David, as a shepherd, understood what it meant to defend his flock. There was a great description of shepherds from the mid-1800s in the Palestinian region and what they looked like when they went out that I, that I read this week. And the, the, the picture that was painted was, you know, and it was, it was a British guy because it was the Brits who were going to Palestine in the mid-1800s. Picture archaeologist, monocle kind of guy. And, uh, you know, so he bet, said it better than I'm going to paraphrase it for you this morning. Uh, but he said, these shepherds aren't exactly like the pastoral scene we have in mind uh, from our own sheepfolds in England. These guys go out with a long gun slung over their shoulder, a pistol on their side, and knives tucked into their belt, and a club in their hands. They're ready for anything, and a look in their eye that says they are ready to use them. That's the kind of shepherd we have. That's the kind of shepherd we see in Revelation when Jesus comes back riding on a white horse with a sword protruding to his mouth, ready to trample out his fury and his wrath on the nations and all those who are disobedient to him. One day this suffering will end. One day Christ will come. And look at the picture. I don't know about you, but I've puzzled over verse 5. I've puzzled over verse 5 for a number of years. And I've looked at it and I've said, you know, I get the first part. I get the valley of the shadow of death. But then all of a sudden, it's you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Where does that image come from? Where does that picture come from? What does it mean? 
And the commentators kind of go back and forth from a variety of different eyes. And they say, well, the scene here completely changes. It goes from the Lord as shepherd to the Lord as the host of this big divine banquet. And I just don't see it because in the next verse, in verse six, it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He's kind of back to the shepherding image of these attributes of God following the sheep. I don't think David's just pivoting for just a single verse. And so as I I was thinking on this and praying over and meditating upon it, I said, is there a connection between David eating in the presence of his enemies in the valley of the shadow of death? And I thought about all the times that David ate in the presence of his enemies. Think about it. He played for his, his harp for Saul in the presence of him when he was raving and stark mad And Saul would throw his spear at him. It was, in fact, David's absence at Saul's dinner table that led to to Saul launching his final pursuit on David in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. Do you remember the account where David meets up with Jonathan out in the field and and, and it's the new moon festival? And, And David's telling Jonathan, your dad wants to kill me. Your dad is trying to kill me. He's got his, his eye set on me with malice. And Jonathan says, look, I'm going to go tomorrow. And you stay here. And if my dad is out to get you, I'll know it when you don't show up for dinner. So David didn't show up for dinner the first night. And Saul thought, well, maybe he's sick. And then the next night, the, 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 the narrative slows way down. And it says that Saul sat down in his chair And Abner sat down in his chair, but David did not. And Saul says, does anyone know where the son of Jesse is? And Jonathan says, oh, he went to his father's house to celebrate with him because it was some special time. And then Saul just comes completely unglued on him and says, I know that you've conspired against me and you've given up your throne and and all this. David had eaten at the table of his enemies many times. Then you consider where David went just a few chapters later to live in the land of the Philistines, where he was eating all of his meals in the presence of his enemies. And God preserved him and kept him through all those things. I think David had all these instances in mind as he said, you have prepared for me a table in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. It says, God, you've put me in the most dangerous place imaginable. You've put me next to a homicidal maniac who's my king who wants to pin me against the wall. And then you've put me in the land of my arch enemies. Think of the Philistines. David used to collect foreskins for bride prices and heads as trophies from the Philistines. Is this the place you want to be eating your dinner? Absolutely not. And David says, this is where I'm at. And yet my cup overflows. David became a rich man while he was in the land of the Philistines. Imagine that. Right? David runs off when he begins his, begins his wilderness wandering, and he's got a sword and a few loaves of bread that he ripped off from the priest at Nob. And just a few chapters later, he's a rich man living in the land of the Philistines. He could say, my cup overflows. It's an amazing picture. Finally, we see the shepherd's pursuit. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
In the midst of all the danger and suffering that David went through, he was at his best. And as he closes out this psalm, he knows that that he is in the presence of God, even in the midst of all those dark times. And he says, surely goodness, goodness. This is the very essence of who God is. And mercy, this is the the Hebrew word has said, or steadfast love or loving kindness. The reason we, it gets translated so many different ways in our English Bible is because we just don't have a, a very good correlation for what it means in English. But the, the essential meaning that, I, that I've been able to boil it down to is has said that steadfast love is love that is based on a promise, not a feeling. That God said he was going to love David and he is going to love him until the sheep comes home. And it says, will follow me all the days of my life. This word will follow is the same word that's pursue. Like David was pursued in the wilderness by Saul. Like David was pursued by his son Absalom when he wanted his life. God's goodness and mercy. And hear this this morning for those of you who are suffering and going through trials. God's goodness and mercy will chase you down like a wanted man. That is how God pursues us. That is God's reckless abandon for his sheep to the point where he sent his own son to this earth to live the life we could not live and pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. God will chase you. That is the God we serve. And he will bring you home. He says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of the days of my life, God will chase me. What a sweet picture that is. We're all over the spectrum in here as far as life goes. Some of us are older. Some of us are younger. Some of us, the number of days that God is going to be chasing us is shorter. But our end result is the same. That we shall dwell securely and completely because of God's goodness towards us in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. Lord, we thank you for your relentless pursuit. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given us to call us out of death and into life as one of your sheep. Father, as we go from this place, Father, we just ask that you would press these words on our heart that we would be filled with joy at being one of your sheep. Even in the midst of life's trials, Lord, we look to your rod, we look to your staff, Lord, because they comfort us. Lord, we take your discipline and we love your protection. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.